why don't we spare some 10% or 20% of our sprint planning trying to, to assign uh, some areas where we can do improvement. It requires some patience, but what I see from my experience, it has a very good reasonable resonance to, to do that. Hey there, and welcome to The Stickbot. This is the podcast where we talk about all things related to observability, because that's what we do and that's what we're passionate about, but also what it's like to work in the ever-changing, dynamic tech industry. So if you are interested in that, you are definitely in the right place. So today we invited Yusuf Setki. Yusuf is a DevOps team lead and AWS cloud architect at Axiom and its sister company Hike. Axiom Telecom is one of the largest telephone retailers of the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia, and Hike, its sister company, is a distribution platform for mobile products. Yusuf joined Hike about two and a half years ago, and his first challenge was to build the architecture from scratch. At the same time, Hike was growing very fast, so Yusuf decided to implement the SRE practice to make sure they could continue to deploy fast with zero to minimal downtime. In this episode, Yusuf talks to Anthony about his lessons learned while implementing the SRE practice. So how did they decide what their SRE strategy would look like? How did he build the team? How did Yusuf and his team make sure the rest of the organization was on board? What are some of the lessons learned? And much more. So without further ado, let's get into it and enjoy the podcast. Hey everybody, uh, Anthony Evans here recording the StackPod, uh, the best tech podcast there is uh, by uh, any stretch. Um, but uh, to get into that, let's, uh, let's start by introducing our guest for today. Uh, our guest is Yusuf Sedki. Um, I'm going to let Yusuf introduce himself uh, and uh, where he works and what he does. Yusuf, go ahead. Hi, Anthony. Thank you very much. My name is Yusuf Sedki. I'm working under Hike uh, uh, company. It's a B2B digital distribution platform uh, based in Dubai. It's a sister company for Axiom Telecom. It's a very well-known uh, company here in UAE and KSA. They are mainly leading in the distribution of uh, mobile uh, products. What we came up is a complete startup, uh, digital transformation. Uh, we are mainly responsible to uh, as a B2B uh, solution that connects distributors to dealers. And the, the platform is actually not restricted to mobile electronics. It's, it's, it's actually can absorb uh, multiple uh, product streams. So we started initially in 2019 in uh, mobile uh, products and we took Axiom as our first customer, a big oh, cool. Yeah. And this was the plan or the strategy for that at that time. So we can see if we can actually prove our product on our first customer, which is Axiom Telecom. Then Hike uh, started to go into the gaming industries like the CD games and the video games and so on. It's still a B2B distribution as well. And we uh, started initially to step in into new other product projects like FMCG. We are still exploring each area on this to explore the platform to absorb different uh, streams in general. So this is mainly Hike. Um, my role is actually uh, leading the DevOps area and the SRE team, and also responsible on the cloud architecture for the Hike platform. Uh, me personally, I work in the software industry for almost uh, plus 10 years. I graduated as a network engineer and I worked for one year in network uh, field, mainly in Orange France Telecom. 
Then, you know, the uh, irony, the irony of uh, getting a networking degree and now you're a cloud guy uh, yeah. where there's literally only configuration and nobody's running around with networking cables anymore. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Then um, I moved to Vodafone. Uh, I worked for almost six years and a half in Vodafone. It was a very interesting journey as well. I started as a system engineer for a couple of years and I became a tech lead on this area then. Then it came to us, guys, there is something called uh, DevOps coming to the picture. We will build a team called Deployment. You guys want to, who wants to join and so on. And we took all the risk and we said, okay, let's try this. It was all new technologies for us. It was like algorithmic names, Kubernetes, Docker, Kafka, Python. My, my dad calls it Kubernetes because uh, he listens to this podcast. And so now yeah. every time I talk to my dad, he's like, how is the Kubernetes this week? Yeah, exactly. So it was actually very, very new technologies to us. We never knew anything about it. The documentation was almost very uh, limited even for us to understand. We started to read a lot on this and... We came to know that Kubernetes came from Google, established from Google, and this is the thin layer that Google actually gave it to the to the people to work on it. And and we we, we liked the idea. We, we then we started to learn more about DevOps and the DevOps principles and what we want to achieve in a DevOps team. And step by step, we grew the team together and uh, we worked in multiple projects. Major ones, at least on my side, was the the eSIM. Uh, is the virtual SIM card that you have in your Apple uh, uh, product, Apple Watch or, or, or Samsung Mobile. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, I remember Apple used to uh, test with Vodafone almost six months to onboard it in multiple opcos at that time. It was a very interesting journey, to be honest. We learned a lot. We understood the, the principle of DevOps. We understood also the streams that we want to have, like the CI/CD, the infrastructure as a code, the production, uh, uh, control, security, centralized logging, uh, monitoring. Um, then I moved uh, here in, uh, uh, in, in this interesting opportunity of working on a startup uh, uh, company because startup used to uh, grow a lot in the, the last years and everyone is building a startup and it's growing and I like the idea. Then uh, that's why it made me took my decision to actually move to Dubai here and to join Hike as a platform. It's very good uh, progress so far. I remember we were like um, 20 in the room at that time, mainly leads and a couple of engineers. Now we grow up a lot. We have almost two zones now, one in the first floor, one in the second floor. It was full of engineers. We have people in UAE, we have people based in India. And it's good because you are building the architecture from scratch and all the logistics that you don't know about it when you're in a corporate company. You came to do it by yourself in a startup company. Starting was even connecting with the vendors and trying to assess the technology stack and so on, you know. And that's mainly at the start. And then I, as I already uh, uh, approached you guys that I want to speak on the SRE because this was my second phase of the journey is how to uh, how did we came to build an SRE team and how we are trying to work on the site reliability culture in, in, in the organization level and on the team level as well? Yeah, that makes, that, that's that's a that's an incredible journey. Uh, that's uh, this this from beginning to end. I have a few questions. Uh, so um, you mentioned 
you know, you kind of were in this position where you were figuring everything out, infrastructure as code, you were getting to know these new services, buzzwords, CICD, things were coming into play. Um, and, and, you know, your, your background being in networking, um, what were some of the key things that helped you successfully incorporate these new concepts and these new technologies um, in a productive way, as opposed to them just being science experiments and doing what everybody does? Oh, we need to migrate to the cloud because we don't know. It's just what everybody's doing. You know what I mean? It's yeah, exactly. Yeah, you don't want it to be a science experiment. How how did you manage that? And and what were some of the things that you did? Yeah, that's a very good question. Actually, it comes in two ways, actually. There is a theoretical learning that you, for sure, you need to know. You need to have the base, you know, what exactly CICD means and why it's benefit for the, for, for, the, for, for the business, for the end user. Why do we need to establish something like this? And the second way is the practical way. We need to have a practical use case uh, on the company that led us to drive this change and to go deep on that. And I was maybe uh, one of the lucky guys that these issues was already there and these gaps was already there. We used to have issues in, 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 in releasing to production, how quickly we go uh, chipping or maybe time to market. So it came as that we need to, okay, we need to have a proper CICD uh, uh, stream here. And from that point, we started to go deep on learning. Okay, how the other companies are doing it? How the big companies like Amazon, Facebook, and Google are actually deploying to production with a zero downtime, and maybe in, in one day they could actually deploy multiple releases without even us knowing. You know, you come to the Facebook, you find the like button, they have a face, happy there, and you don't know. You just, as a user, you just refresh and it's hot, it's done, you know? Yeah. So this was very interesting, to be honest, is how to map technically to the end user, you know, how he actually feels that this is happening very quickly and reliable as well without any issues. So it leads us to this point. So for example, if I take a CI/CD as an example, okay, how can we deploy quicker? We, we use the CI/CD. What kind of tools everyone is using? Some of tools, to be honest, we started to assess some tools we didn't know. We said, okay, let's try it and let's do POC. And if, if it works, then we are fine. If it's not, then let's search for a better thing. Then, okay, how, how everyone is deploying now without downtime? We started to see what is zero downtime deployment. What are the methodologies as Canary or, or Blue Green or whatever? And so on. the same way we took the rest of the use cases. So when we started new projects, even in Vodafone or Hike here, so we are building an environment, let's say production environment. Okay, the guys need a development environment. It took us the same time to build uh, the same environment. Then when we're doing tested, there could be human errors during testing. Okay, guys, there should be something way robust than this. And we introduced the infrastructure as a code. What does it mean? It's a centralized code. Yeah, you're putting all your code, you're putting all your variables across the environments and you're running it from the same place. I'm reducing the human error uh, that during the implementation, the configuration itself. I'm also having centralized environment that whenever I need to build a new environment, I'll just add a piece of code and spin quickly, you know? So mainly use cases that you face plus the theoretical learning that you have as a base, you know? That what could I see personally help me. And later on, we started to develop small exercises that if you want to step in on something new and we don't have a use case for it, okay, let's build a use case and try to see the outcome of it. And if we liked it, let's add it in our stack. If it has a business value, if not, then at least we knew that this is something happening, you know, uh, on the ground. 
Yeah, it's very, it's very interesting. You keep bringing everything uh, back to the business, right? Um, and talking about business value. Uh, and, you know, a lot of the time, you know, and, and this is also getting back to the whole experimentation thing, right? And science projects. And, you know, you adopt all these new technologies just because it is what it is. Um, but it sounds like you've really approached a lot of issues based on, you know, is this going to work for the business? In other words, is this going to work for us? Is it going to work for our product? And is it going to work for our bottom line at the end of the day? Is it going to reduce mean time to resolution? Is it going to improve reliability? Would that be an accurate kind of estimation? Because it sounds to me like you had a lot of time to play and prove things out, like not play, but you know what I mean, like POC yeah, yeah. things so that they, more. yeah, so that they can work. Like, and that, that sounds like a luxury, but, but really if you're running it from a business standpoint, you're basically saying, let's prove if this works or not. It, is that an accurate statement? Yeah, yeah, you're right. And some environments and some companies will not give you the chance to, to do that, to be fair, I understand. But if yeah. we are having issues happening concurrently and every time during maybe our deployment, during our planning, even during our uh, starting from working waterfall versus agile until I'm actually how I'm deploying in production and how long it takes to, to release a, a new feature to production. Okay, guys, but we have an issue. We, we keep on repeating it every time when we have an issue. So why don't we spare some 10% or 20% of our sprint planning trying to, to assign uh, some areas where we can do improvement? It's, it requires some patience, but what I see from my experience, it has a very good reasonable results to, to do that, you know? And yeah. Yeah, I think uh, well, it's it's the old-fashioned thing when you're younger and you're 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 looking at cars. I'm I've got kids, so I'm like talking when you're kids. You know, everything is like a red, green, or a blue car, right? It, they only look at the color and what's outside. And I think developers get the same way, right? They want the enhancements, they want the shiny things, the things that people notice. It, nobody wants to change the oil, right? And, and that's kind of what it is, right? You need to maintain the car so that it can keep on going because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what color it is or how big the engine is. If you're not taking care of it and you don't ensure that it can go the mileage, you're not, you're not building something that's going to be ultimately successful. And that, that's quite hard for a lot of people to adopt. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I agree. <laughs> yeah. So, so you went over to, to hike, you've taken this experience with you, um, uh, you know, People should go to your website. You do have a great uh, product uh, that you've got. It's got a great uh, user interface. And I think that's part of the, the core value proposition, right? Is centralizing everything, make it a nice experience from either a mobile or from a desktop, whatever it may be, um, and, and create uh, value for your, for your customer. Um, and obviously reliability comes into that. Um, can you talk to me a little bit about uh, in more detail, in any case, how you built out the SRE practice, you know, from scratch at Hike and, and how you got to where you're at today? Yeah, sure. Uh, this actually came uh, back last year, the first start of this year. And to be honest, the idea itself came from my uh, ex-manager, and I want to thank him for this as well. Uh, we started the journey Originally, when we built the platform, okay, I told them I will focus mainly on the infrastructure monitoring as a start. 
for two reasons. This is the area that I'm expert with. And at that time, due to the budget purposes, and we don't know if the product or the platform itself will, yeah. will, will succeed or not, you know. But once we did this and the platform actually showed a, a, an extraordinary results than we expected, and we have even 15 distributors right now are using our uh, platform, uh, things started to grow in a different way. We have customer base, we have dealers every day using the mobile app and the tablet and the web portal day to day. So we are actually growing a lot. The microservices, even on a, on a microservice level, we have we started with 12, 15, 20, 50, 4, uh, 75, 80, and so on. The, the, the rate is actually very high, you know, and the technology stack started to grow way bigger. We, we came to understand that monitoring just as a monitoring solution is not, uh, it will not fit us, you know, the normal monitoring behavior and to have an operations team that doing the classical way, once everything is on production, they start to monitor the, the new features. And if there's an issue, they will raise it to us. And, and, and the hectic process is not actually going to be the, the best uh, fit for us. So. Uh, I remember we started to read uh, on the SRE role. It came from Google. We know that Google established this. The only code that I could say that Google Engine doesn't fall down. You know, we never hear that Google Engine goes down. So how these guys are doing this? You know, so for sure these are the best people who did this. So we started to read their uh, their model. We started to read their case studies. Even they have an SRE ebook. On the internet, uh, we read it all. Then we started to look on on case studies who actually use this. One of them was Spotify, if I remember, and Netflix. They they took this model and they mentioned in their uh, technical case that they customized the model based on their own uh, 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 current uh, platform and resources and setup and so on. Then we find out that not everything could fit for us, at least as a start, you know. So what we did is uh, we hired one SRE engineer. Uh, he is actually still with me right now since the start. And we together, we said, okay, let's explore from knowledge perspective. We built an SRE mind map. So the SRE mind map is actually connecting everything that we read about on this map. And we see at the end of the month, if this is actually going to fit for us, yes, we take it as, an, as, a, as a green uh, check. If this is not going to fit for us now, let's make a red check and we can look for it later on due to the current resources, due to the current stage of the platform and so on. And after the SRE mind map, we started to look, okay, now we understood, now we have the theoretical base. And we have, of course, production issues happen sometimes from time to time. Database, for example, goes up to CPU, microservices. Yeah. Sometimes it's a fact of life. It doesn't matter how great your processes are. Technology fails. Like, you, like Otherwise, everybody would have perfect phone calls. Yeah, Nobody exactly. would buy a new TV. Nobody would buy a new PC because technology is finite. It, it, it ages. You know, you have to replace it. it, it and even the best the best laid plans of my cement and all that kind of fun stuff. You, you can't predict the future, right? Yeah, exactly. So we started, to, so we have cases, we have history of cases. We have also the knowledge. Okay. How we can actually adapt our knowledge to these historical cases that we had on the system. We find out that we are, we took a long time to, to investigate to know the root causes for, for a specific small thing. So we find out, okay, then we need to look on the tools, the technology, tools that we could help us to achieve 
uh, our goals. And we started to look for APM solutions. We enhanced our monitoring end-to-end -end from Prometheus, Grafana. We built a monitoring level across all the layers, starting from the hardware or the cloud, you could say, until the network, until the logs itself to see the frequent logs that could come up and so on. And then this is, was the start. And this was actually on, on the SRE level. I started to, to take it in a, in, a, in a bigger scope. Okay, how can we now use this to help our business or help our platform to be reliable? So we took the PRR model, which is a production uh, readiness review. It's something Google have implemented. They have five to six steps, if I remember, uh, starting from, uh, uh, I think, uh, 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 if I remember the first step, it was like engagement with the, with the people inside the, the organization, how you're going to engage yourself with the development teams, with the architects and so on, moving to the analysis, then improving and refactoring and training and service onboarding. And it was more into theoretical thinking, you know, and they gave us a graph for the service lifetime. Any service starts with architecture development, then limited availability. They do a beta or alpha testing, then general availability, then monitoring, and then depreciation service is not going to be uh, there later on. Okay, then I we sat together, we said, okay, let's now try to build a framework customized for Hike so we can work on it, you know. And we said, okay, we have two types of methodologies. We either uh, onboard our microservices to the SRE because we cannot simply say, okay, we have SRE, we will take all the microservices part of the stack. This is not going to happen. We said we will work on microservice by microservice. And whenever we do optimization on this microservice, we will onboard it in our SRE stack. And whatever is not there, it's fine. We can keep it as it is as long as it's running. And this is the framework and the strategy that we used. And we started to break down our microservices into three layers, to be honest. Core services, which is pure core flow. If it goes down, it will impact all the users. Like the Second, front end, right? Yeah. The front yeah, end. If the front of, end goes down, then... It... Exactly. Uh, order management, uh, payment. One yeah. of the core services, if it goes down, it's a catastrophic for us. And then the second one was actually the normal services, which is have major features, but not uh, part of the core flow. Could be loyalty points that we give to the customer, could be collection, could be something that could have an impact, but not a major flow. And the third one is the supplementary, is like, for example, SMS notification. You may, uh, there could be a delay in, in, in SMS could be received to that, but at the end of the day, the payment has gone. You know? So we break down the service into this categorization and we started to pick them based on that. And it wasn't enough, to be honest. I thought that now we are ready, let's do it. No, it wasn't because features are going and people are developing on top of these microservices. So we started to do the engagement. We found out that this is not enough for us to work alone. We need to go into the software development lifecycle and we need to explore our culture to everyone. We worked with the back end uh, uh, guys and the front end. We are actually squad. Uh, restructured and we have something called infrastructure squad. This squad is not DevOps. They are actually back-end and front-end guys. And we are working with them to enhance the system uh, reliability of the platform. So we started with them because these are the most mean close guys that we could understand our pain areas. And we told them, okay, guys, let's build a framework. Let's build the framework for engagement and let's build the framework on a service level. So on a service level, we have 
optimized it into five phases. We worked on how we can do service benchmarking, how we can do capacity planning, performance tuning, how we can do monitoring on production, what kind of alerts we needed because excessive alerts is actually a negative thing, you know, on your, on your end as well. Then it worked successfully. We get good results. We started with one microservice, which was having an issue on it on production in the last two, three months. We said, okay, this is the best case that we can work on it and see a good results. Once it was actually successful, stable, we started to explore the engagement across all the teams. I spoke with the architects. I told them, okay, SIA team needs to be involved from the start to know the idea, moving to the basic architecture, we need to know what microservices new will be introduced, what existing flows that will come to the picture. Then we spoke with the back end and the front end teams. We sit with them in the sprint planning, on, especially on the, uh, introducing the API calls, the, we call it the technical uh, solution uh, meeting. Uh, what API calls will come to the picture, how this will impact us on, on the SRE, how this will impact the, the numbers that are already there that we have it in our uh, area. Moving to the QA team, because we have performance testers, but not that big number. So we work on the automation. This is maybe a little bit DevOps mindset. Okay, if you guys don't have enough resources, let's automate what you guys are doing as much as we can. And SRE and, and actually and QA are working together using the same tools. And the execution of the service benchmarking and, and the results is happening via CICD, via Jenkins. And we are releasing the, the, the reports or the results on, on, on from the Jenkins to the Bitbucket or the repository that they can view the results and so on. Yeah, that's mainly high level. Maybe well, you, you, know, you, did, you did notice something uh, really. So, so if you take a step back, right, in the genesis of, you know, what you getting more involved with the dev team was about, okay, how do we prioritize services, right? So that we can deliver the best reliability. And if we take that three example that you had, right, where let's say the least important was the text message notification, right, going back, um, you know, with CI, CD and developers being developers, you know, if you're not involved in the development life cycle, how are you to know when a new API comes on board that in actual fact means that somebody is now going to use the notification service, microservice, to actually reach out to a payment API so that a payment doesn't happen until, let's say, an encrypted text message leaves with a confirmation. Now, if that's delayed, all of a sudden, that microservice is now priority one, and you would have never known about it, right? So, so by embedding yourself into the uh, development lifecycle, you're able to understand and, 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 and see that a microservice's importance is only as important as the developer makes it, right? And if the developer makes it more important or less important, you need to be aware of it because that's going to ultimately impact your bottom line, which is the reliability of the application. Frankly, you couldn't care if there are bells and whistles or not. You obviously want that as a product to deliver a better experience but you know is a better experience uh better than no experience you know it, it's you it's gotta a, yeah, yeah you, you gotta to get that balanced yeah exactly yeah yeah i'll tell you why because i don't because one of our devops automations that we did uh it's not that whenever any new microservice will come into the picture they don't need to step up on DevOps team, guys, we have a new microservice, please build the CI CD for it. Okay, I told them, no, we will give you an automation that you can actually 
whenever you have a new microservice with a repo already created for it and a code, just go to the Jenkins. They will put the URL of the Bitbucket or the GitHub URL for the repo, and that's it. It will automatically create for him a CI CD. If it's a Java, it will have the same CI CD Java based on the previous microservice. It's a Node.js, it will do the same. If it's something else, it will have, have a three templates that can actually create the CI CD from them. So the, the issue of this, it's good that we are not, they are not depending on us to create CI CDs. But the bad for us that sometimes we don't know that there's a new microservice came to production actually at that time, you know, because they don't need DevOps, they are just creating it from the automation that we did. So we figured out the new microservices came, which impacted our, our flow. So this was the challenge, how we can be aware without even uh, slowing them down, you know. And this is where we started to build the engagement and the framework that can achieve both of us, you know. Yeah, yeah. So you know, one of the one of the things that, you know, as you enhance this practice now and, and development is getting more aligned with site reliability and it's an actual DevOps site as opposed to, you know, not. Um, they uh, you, one of the things you 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 might begin to notice, right, as you go into your run phase is that Kubernetes is expensive to run, right? And when you're running it on AWS, you do have alternatives. So are you experiencing uh, additional complexity right now by people maybe experimenting with using a mixture of microservices? as well as like serverless uh, stuff. So like Lambda scripts running, you know, code, cause we don't need them running with an EC2 environment running all the time supporting Kubernetes cause they're just not used frequently enough. H how are you dealing with that challenge um, as more complexity is coming into the environment? Um, currently I'm using only uh, Kubernetes uh, extensively actually across all the environments I have around. Okay. 100 plus servers uh, for around five to six clusters uh, currently right now. I'm not using Lambda functions extensively. I'm just using it for automation parts as well only. Uh, specifically on the lower environments, we stop down the environments and we spin it up every day to save cost via Lambda scripts, which takes the, our servers by a chronological order, starting from shutting down the database and the EC2s and, the, and so on, and spinning up by without human intervention. This is mainly Lambda. Uh, Kubernetes is mainly uh, hosted on EKS with a mixture of auto-scaling groups. We are using uh, on-demand and on-spot machines. Um, some people would say, why on-spot? On-spot is completely unreliable, which is against our culture. However, we are doing it in a way that uh, we can have a mixture between on-demand and on-spot uh, to actually have the benefits of high uh, specs with a low cost. And at the same time, the same microservice with a replica is actually spent over the on-demand and on-spot. And we are using some set of technologies open source like pod anti-affinity, cluster over provisional and uh, cluster autoscaler. These tools are allowing me to spin the same microservice replica across different availability zones, different machine specs, different even uh, uh, machine uh, family sizes and different hosts, which leads to this reliability option. And I'm still benefit for high CPU and low cost at that time or high specs and low cost at that time. Um, my only concern on the Lambda functions itself that if I move to the serverless architecture, I would save a lot of cost. 
but I would be a little bit locked with the vendor. If I need to move to another cloud provider, I need to repeat all this automation again, you know? But Kubernetes at the end, it's an open source tool. I have the microservice, I have the repo. Simply, I would spin them using Helm charts or CICD or even kubectl. And the awareness and the technology uh, knowledge is even higher than uh, the serverless uh, architectures, at least on this stage. We don't know tomorrow. Tomorrow could be even, this is the, the future and we don't know, you know? But I mean, this is my was my assessment at that time. You know? So just just a little sidebar here. Uh, I don't know if it's just me, um, but I have huge problems with EKS and auto scalar groups. Have you ever noticed how they don't work? Like you always have the minimum nodes, and then when you update it to like say, okay, I want to change my minimum from three to five. It never changes for me. I, I don't know if it's just me, no, but then I end up with my three nodes. You know, maybe this is a brief AWS sidebar technical support thing, but it's not just happened to me. It's happened to my customers as well. We're like having to just respin up a, an auto scaler group. It's uh, it's like the most least reliable component in AWS I've I've used. I'm actually using auto scaling and uh, aggressively on three worker nodes. I am. Uh, uh, I think my minimum is around 22 and the maximum is 55, something like this, for one only uh, group. I have three groups, actually. Uh, the auto-scaling specifically for the on-spot is very aggressive. But so far, it's working. I mean, I don't know, but I didn't face this problem so far, which is good. <laughs> the cluster auto-scaler is working fine. As long as you're updating it with the right numbers, it's working fine. Um, I don't see, know. That's what I do. That's what I do. I put the numbers in and it's not... <laughs> <laughs> yeah nah, that, that's just that's just a sidebar but um we we have actually uh just about ran out of time now um before we leave everybody today do you have any recommendations do you i know you've mentioned the sre handbook by google um you know if somebody is about to undertake this position and they want to be as knowledgeable as possible going into this or maybe it's just a book or something you're reading on the side that doesn't necessarily pertain to SRE. What would you recommend? Uh, actually, I recommend to first start with the Google case because this is the, the guys, these are the owners who started the SRE model itself. And this is, to be honest, was our first article at that time. I could send you also a couple of links that we worked through. We have it still as a reference here, as a history. And this gave us a lot of uh, knowledge and theoretical knowledge, which we actually need at that time. Uh, after understanding the theoretical base, you need to understand some uh, metrics and how can you measure your team like service level objectives, service level indicators, metrics uh, like um, uh, submetrics actually could help you to, to, to let's say, take the theoretical work into numbers, which every team actually needed for their OKRs, you know? This could be the second step as well. Then you need to assess the technology stack that how you can achieve your goal, how you want to achieve this metrics or the OKRs that you, you actually start. Okay, you said, I want to have the system reliable 99.93 this year, okay? So it could be four hours, could be five hours, okay? You will have an error budget for four hours. After this, you will be charged, uh, theoretically charged and uh, on your mind. Then the technology stack is very important here to achieve your results and knowledge will come by cases because uh, no one will tell you how to use it efficiently 
other than yourself. If you don't have a problem case that happened to your system, you will never uh, efficiently utilize it. But if you have a problems in your system, this is actually healthy because it will let you learn from what you have faced in the, in the previous uh, uh, problem. So even though I don't recommend to have SRE from day one when you're still in MVP phase, you're, you don't have a product yet. Build the product and whenever the product is ready and you know that is actually gonna go live, then think about the SRE as a thinking and, and then as, a, as a culture as well in the team. Because if you started from scratch as a culture, you will be able to build a reliable system from now on. But don't say, I don't have still, I'm still in the MVP phase. Okay, I will build an SRE team now. They will come, okay, they will try to do some stuff, but they don't have history to, to give you, uh, let's say, uh, a reasonable results you know, at that time. You need to invest on the DevOps area at this time because this is the most critical part, how to go quickly to the market. And once it looks like it's happening, guys, we are in the, in the, in the right way. Now look at the SRE side, how you can achieve the SRE culture on, on across the organization. Even if you have a small team, if you have a small tools, it's still uh, valuable. And it will give you the small minor changes because if you read about the starting from the architecture as well and you engage from the architecture point of view from, from the other and the software development lifecycle, you can tell them, guys, you're doing this wrong. You should have done this. Okay, we need to do service benchmark for these APIs. You may find some surprising results on some microservices that you never even came to your mind that it could happen unless you have a problem in production, you know? At least this is my experience that I faced and not sure if this is right or wrong, but at the end of the day, SRE is a culture like DevOps. You know, you will doesn't have exact steps to follow, but it has some guidelines, some principles, some practical use cases that you need to take and customize it for your own uh, company. Awesome, awesome. Well, Yusuf, I, I, I'd love. Uh... I'd love to stay and talk some more. Maybe, maybe what we'll do is we'll we'll have a panel. We've spoken about it with some of our previous guests who, you know, work in the site reliability engineering space. And it probably would be good to kind of get people together and do a bit of a QA as part of a special episode. Um, but I would like to thank you for your time uh today. Uh it's been really appreciated. I I I hope that people find value from 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 your experience and uh, the fact that it is possible to incorporate uh, the Google-like SRE with, you know, minor modifications for an individual business um, as part of, you know, uh, your ongoing operations. And you've done it. Like, like that's, that's, that's a great achievement. Um, but yeah, again, thank you very much. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I hope you have a nice day. You too. Thank you very much. Thank you, guys. Thank you for cool. your time. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like more information about StackState, you can visit stackstate.com. That's S-T-A-C-K-S-T-A-T-E.com. And you can also find a written transcript of this episode on our website. So if you prefer to read through what they've said, definitely head over there and also make sure to subscribe if you'd like to receive a notification whenever we launch a new episode. So until next time.